doesn't take much when you look around. So many people. So many wonderful people. So many people with needs, dreams, hurts, hopes, desires. Have you ever thought about what God dreams about? What keeps him up at night? What he desires? God in 1 Timothy paints a picture for us, and he tells us what he dreams about. He says he simply desires for all men to be saved. This is what God dreams about, his people. And what if we, as a group of 20-somethings, actually began to care about people the way that he did? What if we cared about their hurts, their needs? What if we tried to bring his people home? What if we made his people our people? What if I made his people my people? young adults how is your Thursday night decent decent hey no worries because tomorrow is Friday and we like to say around here Fridays kind of don't count like you can show up to work half awake and they're still okay they won't fire you it's all good so um, hey welcome to young adults welcome to our series my people this series is very dear to the heart of Red Rocks Church this series is very dear to the heart of Red Rocks young adults if you've been around Red Rocks Church for any amount of time you know that here at Red Rocks Church we believe in bringing prodigals home and being an open door a front porch, a place where anybody who wants to know God or who wants to come home to God, who maybe feels far off from God, far away from him, nothing like him, not good enough, not measuring up, that they have a space to come and to be welcome. And at Red Rocks Young Adults, that's our mission, that's our goal, that we as a community would be a group of people that are so focused and so attentive to God's people. Right now, we live in the city of Denver. How many of you love living in the city of Denver? Like, it's amazing. If you have not, uh, like, if you don't love it, like, you just need to drive yourself to Akron, Ohio for six months. No, Akron is actually super awesome, lots of nice people, but nothing really going on, okay? And so here we've got some Rocky Mountains, we've got stadiums and awesome buildings and a beautiful city, we've got amazing people, really good restaurants, and we just seem to be getting more restaurants. Um, the other thing about Denver that's so amazing is that Denver was rated by Forbes magazine as the fifth fastest growing city in America in America, which is incredible. Forbes also said that we are number two, from 2009 to 2012, number two for attracting young talent. Young talent, people who are educated, people who are ready to make a difference in the workforce, people who have skills and abilities. The median age of people in Denver is 31. And if you don't understand um, what that median age means, that means that our city is super duper 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 young. They are just like you. What's also interesting about the city of Denver, 
according to Barna, is that while young adults are moving to Denver, are coming here, um, this generation of young adults, excuse me, more than any other generation before them, is the most unchurched generation of all time. Barna also notes that this generation, more than any other generation, is very open to God. So what this means is, is we have a whole city chock full of people ready to hear about Jesus, open to hearing about Jesus, and yet no one is telling them about Jesus. This is the reality of our city. Barna also notes that the top reason or one of the top reasons that a young adult will come to faith or will consider having faith or that their faith will grow is the faith and the influence of their peers. And so this is good news for this group of people. What this means is we live in a city that is a young city that is teeming with young adults who are just waiting and wondering about this God who are open to hearing about God and who are waiting for someone to just come up and say, oh, hey, my name's Jess. I go to a really great church. Would you like to come? In 1 Timothy, God says this about what he desires, and he doesn't talk much in Scripture about what he desires, but in 1 Timothy, he says that he desires that all his people would be saved and come to a saving knowledge of him. This is what God thinks about. This is what God dreams about. And we thought for the next, you know, couple of weeks, wouldn't it be awesome if we talked about this? And then next week, we're going to get together under the stars, and we're going to invite as many people as we can, and we're going to get them together, and we're going to say, this is who we serve. This is where our hope comes from. Do you want to be a part? And so tonight, what I'd like to talk to you all about is the fact that you don't have to be perfect, that you don't have to know it all, that you don't have to have a degree in theology, that you don't have to be the best of the best, have all the knowledge or the intelligence in the world. You just have to be open to the questions and you have to be willing to share Jesus with people. You don't have to know everything. You just have to know who he is. And I titled tonight, All I Know. All I know if you're taking notes. And can you turn to your neighbor right now and say, hey, this is all I know. <laughs> all right. Hey, hey, let's bow our heads. Let's invite Jesus to be here. Jesus, you are our king. God, you're good. I love you. So grateful you saved me. God, I pray tonight that we would just move out of our places where we think that, God, this, this life is about us. And that we would move into a space where we understand that your love is so, like, so big, so grand, that we can't keep it to ourselves, God overflow in our hearts tonight so all we can do is move into our spaces our places of influence and tell people about your love about your grand love God give us courage don't let a single person leave here tonight without knowing God that we are your heralds your disciples and that we are the people that are supposed to fulfill your commission Jesus 
you trust us. And tonight we take up your call. We love you. Thank you for giving us everything we need to complete the work set before us. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. All right, so how many of you uh, have courage enough to say, uh, you know what, yeah, I'm like a new Christian, been a Christian for like six months, a year, two years. How many in here? Okay, a couple of you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, all right, so I was a new Christian when I was 18, okay? Um, so it was a while ago now, like three years ago, and... Um, and uh, and uh, didn't grow up in a Christian home, okay? Didn't know what Christmas was about when I was growing up. I, I knew it wasn't about Santa Claus, but couldn't really tell you what it was about. And so um, when I was growing up, um, you know, I was always curious about God. And by the time I was 18, a bunch of circumstances led me to a place, and a bunch of people led me to a place where I received Jesus at a camp um, in the middle of Minnesota, and I gave my life to him. And uh, after that, I remembered sitting in my room and I was reading the Bible and I'm kind of flipping through it and I think to myself, I'm not even sure if this is written in English because that's how much I don't understand it. And so I thought I need to get myself an education. So I pulled all of my um, applications to public universities and to the schools that I thought I would be going to and I started applying for Christian universities all across the nation and I ended up going to CCU down the street. Whoop, whoop and uh, go Cougs. And so uh, I, I went there, and uh, which, which lent to this experience of being new at something everyone else is old at, right? And so I'm walking into my classes for the very first time, and I sit down in my Old Testament class, and I'm like, okay, you know, and I'm like ready to learn, okay? And the professor is like, all right, everybody, turn to the book of Joel. And I'm like, sweet, Like, no, like 20 minutes go by. Like, and I'm still looking for the book of Joel. They're on to the next book. Like, this is the anxiety you have when you're a new believer, right? I would ask dumb questions. Like, I remember sitting in my Old Testament class, and they started talking about different wars and wars with Philistines and the Ammonites and, you know, all of these different types of wars. And at one point, we read a text, and we're kind of dissecting this text where um, the Philistines were killed in the middle of the night by the armies of God. And I kind of raised my hand because I'm like, whoa, so angels kill people. And, and does that still happen? Like, and, and literally, like, half the class turns around, and they're like, dude, like, you're so dumb. Like, no, you know, like, and, but I had these questions, and I remembered sitting one day, and this was kind of the pinnacle of it all. I remembered sitting one day, and I raised my hand to ask a question about Sodom and Gomorrah, but I said Saddam and Gomorrah, and all of the Iwana's kids started snickering, and, you know, and I was just like, Oh my gosh, dude, like why is this so difficult? And um and I remembered thinking, and maybe you felt this way, like, like I felt like I had a million questions and I felt like I didn't know, like I didn't have the answers for very many things. Maybe you feel that way right now in your Christianity. Like you have so many things that you maybe yet don't have answers to. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John 9, and we're going to be hanging out in John 9 for the rest of tonight, because we are going to meet a character who had a lot of questions, but not just that, he didn't know everything. 
and yet he was an impactful figure in scripture. And so uh, John 9, John 9 verse 1, and it reads this. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work, and while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told them, wash in the pool of Siloam, which meant scent. And so the man went and washed and came home seeing his neighbors. And those who had formerly seen him begging said, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that it was. Others said, no, it only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then are your eyes open, they asked. And he replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes, and he told me to go to Salome and wash. So I went and I washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. And so here's a story about Jesus walking through town, and he's with his disciples, and at some point he happens upon a man who has congenital blindness, meaning he was blind from the day he was born. From the day he was born, he couldn't see. And so we picture, um, or actually, it's actually difficult for us to picture this because most of us in here, that's not our problem. He has never seen the light of day. He has only seen darkness. A few months ago, uh, Doug did a sermon here, and he uh, talked about this woman during our Silver Lining series, and her name is Anna, and she um, had sight, and then one day woke up and could no longer see, despite a little patch of color that she could see in the bottom right corner of her eyes. And I remembered her talking about it, and she, she describes it as though she was just like in permanent night. She like didn't know what time it was. And this is this man's reality. He's never seen color. He's never seen a rainbow. He's never seen a face. He doesn't know what it looks like when someone's laughing. Like what does that look like on a person's face? He has no idea. Not only that, but as they happen upon this man in first century Judea, if someone was blind, if someone was crippled, if somebody had some type of deformity, it was assumed that they were sinful. It was assumed that they had some type of sin, and that was why God had struck them with this specific type of thing. What they didn't understand was that it wasn't a specific type of sin or a personal sin that led to this place, but it was actually the overall fall of man that had led to this man's conclusion. And so Jesus speaks up when they ask, was it because of his sin? And he refutes it and he says, no. <laughs> no, it wasn't because of his personal sin. And you can almost see, I love this because Jesus loves the underdogs. He loves the people that are low. He loves the people that are tiny. He loves the people that are without. And he goes to them and he defends them. And, you know, people are like, well, is it because he's a sinner? Is it because his family's a sinner? Or what's the deal? And you can feel him bowing up and kind of being like, whoa, back up. It's not because of his personal sin. And by the way, today you are going to see the mightiness and the glory of God. He loves the underdog. So he kneels down onto the ground and he spits into it and he makes mud. And commentators, the ones that I was reading this week, say that when God created man, that he knelt down and he took clay and he made man 
And in this moment, what they believe is that he knelt down and spit and he made clay and he actually made new eyes for this man. And then he says, go, wash. And so people lead him over to Salome. Because I was thinking about it. I was like, he couldn't have gone alone because he's still got mud on his eyes, right? So like people have to take him over. And so he kneels down into the water and he washes. And for the very first time, he sees trees when he looks up and green and skies and blue and colors. And he looks up and I see Jesus pulling him up and he sees the face of Jesus. Do you remember the very first time you saw the face of Jesus? Do you remember the first time you saw his face? That you saw his light. It's an unreal moment for this man. But almost immediately, as soon as he gets healed, the Pharisees come to him and they begin questioning him. They pull him aside and they have a million questions for him. When did this happen? How did this happen? Who did this to you? What, like, when did this occur? And what does this man say? Or by whose power does this man say he does these things? And so we're going to pick up in chapter 9, verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, this is not a man from God, for he does not uh, keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a sinner perform such signs? They were divided. So the story continues, and basically there's another 20 verses where this man is questioned by the Pharisees. He's put into a scenario where, that he didn't ask for, okay? All he did was get healed by Jesus. He never really wanted to be in the middle of a great debate, but he was. And for the next 20 verses, they proceed to grill him. And I think sometimes we think that when we're going to sh- go and we're going to share Jesus and we're going to, you know, kind of shed the light that's been shed into our hearts, that it's going to be, you know, this sunshine day and we're going to sit down with our friends on a park bench and we're going to be like, oh, hey, like, have you ever thought about Christ? And they're going to be like, no. And I'm going to be like, can I pray for you? And they're going to be like, yes. And no. Like, that's not how it plays out in this text. The way it plays out is he gets healed. He meets Jesus. He has this life-changing experience. And immediately, people begin grilling him and questioning him. And I think what John 9 is trying to tell us, young adults, is that if we are going to follow Jesus and we are going to experience Jesus and we are going to have his life-changing work and then his life-changing words on our lips, that we had better get ready for some sticky conversations. And so I wrote this, and this is the first point I think we can gain from John 9, and it's this, let the questions begin. Let the questions begin This man regains his sight, and immediately he begins to be questioned by the people around him. And if you are a follower of Christ in here, let me just kind of alleviate some anxiety for you. This will be your future. This will be your story. If it's not already, people are going to ask you millions upon millions upon millions of questions about Jesus and about your faith. 
Before I started working at uh, Red Rocks, I had an opportunity to wait tables, which was awesome. I did it for three years. I worked downtown at the Denver Chop House, and I got to wait tables with some of my closest friends, some of the craziest people that you would ever meet. And for three years, I spent time with them. And for three years, every single time I would walk into this environment, I would be wet, met with a new question. It would be questions like this. Like on Easter Sunday, I was waiting tables with my friend named Paul. And Paul approached me and he said, hey, Jess, so what is Easter about? And I'm like, okay, like we're doing this. And I'm like, well, <laughs> Paul, you know, and I'm like getting my plates ready. I'm like, um, Paul, is, this is the day where God says that... Um, he became a human being in the form of Jesus. It's the day, uh, three days after he crucified, and it's the day that he rose from the dead. It's the day that we believe that death was conquered and that death doesn't win, God wins. That's what Easter is. And he said, oh, all right. A few weeks later, I get a conversation with my friend Tristan, and she's like, Jess, why, why are Christians such hypocrites? Like, why do they say one thing, but then, but then they don't do that thing? And I'm like, Okay, yes. Um, so here's the thing. We believe that, um, that, you know, I'm imperfect, you're imperfect, we're all, imp we're all imperfect, um, and we believe that a perfect God saves us. Like, that's, that's what we believe. And so, yeah, I get it. And then we had a conversation. A few weeks after that, I had a friend named uh, Trevor, and we're, like, setting up, you know, for a banquet, and we're putting tablecloths down and, and plating, you know, and doing the whole thing, and, and he just kind of leans over on the table, and he's like, so, Jess, um, I've been praying lately. Do you have any pointers or anything? <laughs> <laughs> the questions will come. A few weeks later, I'm talking with my friend John, and he tells me about a movie he just saw about religion, and that he agrees, because the movie um, is basically, you know, kind of debunking every single world religion, and he says, you know, I agree with this movie, Jess, and I was like, well, I haven't seen it, John, so what are you agreeing with? And he said, well, you know, I agree that there's no God, and I said, oh, well, that's really dumb, John, <laughs> and he said, I said, John, you've never had a supernatural experience in your entire life? And he said, well, well, no. I mean, I believe in God. I just don't know what I think about the Bible. And I said, well, all right. And then we had a conversation. If you are a Christian, you are signing up for some sticky conversations and I got to a point where every time I would walk into work, I would say, Jesus, just give me your heart because I don't know what I'm doing and give me your words. And John 9 is trying to tell us that if we are believers and God is changing our lives and the Holy Spirit's working in our lives and we're being transformed and renewed, that people are going to notice it and the questions are coming. And what God wants you to know is that he needs you to have an open heart and a willingness, and a generosity as you approach these people, uh, a defenselessness where you say, ask whatever you want, I'll do my best. Let the questions begin. I'm here for these sticky conversations. The question is not, will the questions come? The question is, how are you going to answer them when they come for you? Because they're coming. First Peter says this. It says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. 
Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Jesus says, always be prepared, young adult. If you're walking into work, be prepared. If you're walking into King Supers, be prepared. If you're on a date, be prepared. Because believe me, people are coming and they're going to ask you. It will be the most inopportune time on your date. And they'll be like, you guys seem really happy. Like, where's all that joy coming from? And Jesus says, be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within you. If you don't know tonight, because Christ is working in your life, people are going to see on your life a hope that they can't explain. They will see a joy that they can't understand, a, 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 a hope that they can't touch, and they, they want to know, where's it coming from? And Jesus says, you only need to be able to answer where your hope comes from. That's it. Be prepared always to give an answer for where your hope is coming from. Why are you so happy? What, like, what is the deal? You just lost your job. How do you have peace right now, man? Like, you, who are you? You're, you're always seemingly joyful. Like, what's your issue? Like, people are going to ask you questions. You know what Jesus doesn't say you need to be prepared to answer? He doesn't say you need to be prepared to answer why or why not it was six-day creation. He doesn't tell you that you need to be prepared to explain how Noah got two of every animal onto the boat. <laughs> he doesn't say that you need to be prepared to talk about whether or not at the Tower of Babel that's when all of languages were created. He doesn't ask you to be prepared to have the perfect answer for when someone asks you why do bad things happen to good people, that you have the perfected answer in that moment. He just says, when the questions come, and they will, be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. Young adult, be prepared. The story goes on. John 9, verse 18 and the Pharisees are just grilling this kid, and they don't stop. They still did not believe that he had been blind and, so they and, and had received sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one that was born blind? How is it now that he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know that he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who were already deciding that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, go and ask him. The second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. They are relentless. They said, we know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I know, I was blind, but now I can see. The Pharisees get in close with his parents, and they're like, all right, all right. Are you his mom? Sweet. Was he blind when he was a baby? And you have to picture, like, how offensive this is. The mom's like, yeah, dude. Um, I taught him how to crawl and not run into things. I taught him how to walk and, like, be safe. Yes, he's been blind since he was a kid. Thank you very much. But then they say, look, just go talk to him because they are so afraid of being put out of the synagogue. In first century Judea, if you were put out of the synagogue, you were 
excommunicated. You had no social life anymore. All of your friends were in the synagogue. Everybody knew was in the synagogue. It was basically getting kicked out of your favorite church, never getting to come back ever again. It was cruel. And so they say, look, just go talk to him because we're freaked out by you people. And so they go back and they're like, all right, dude who can see, let's talk about this. So be honest now about this Jesus guy. He was a sinner, right? Now be honest because God's watching. And the guy goes, look, I, I don't know everything. Like, I can't answer all your questions. You've got so many questions, and I can't answer them all. I don't know everything, but I do know one thing. I was blind, and now I can see. I think that's the second thing we can learn from John 9, that we can, with boldness and with confidence, say, I don't know everything, but I do know one thing. I don't know everything, but I do know one thing. Um, there's a book by Tony Campolo, and it's called Let Me Tell You a Story. Um, and in it, he just tells a bunch of stories. You guys should read it sometime. It's awesome. Um, but he just tells story after story after story. And this one is about when he was a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And so if you don't mind, I'm just going to read it. When I was teaching at the University of Pennsylvania, I had two students who were heading to Cornell University to do graduate work. This was back in the 60s when Marxism was in high gear at the university. One of the students, who was by far the most brilliant student I had ever had, was a thoroughgoing Marxist. The other young man, who was of average intelligence, was a young ma uh, Christian man and a member of the Bible study group that I led each week. When I heard they were going to be rooming together, I was somewhat dismayed because I knew the Marxist student could out-argue my Christian student on any given subject. I wondered how long it would be before the Marxist argued the Christian out of his faith. When I met up with these two students several months later, I was surprised to learn that the Marxist had become a Christian. Out of curiosity, I asked, what happened or how did this happen? I had worries that you both would end up Marxists for a couple of months. Every night, we would argue. Or every night, I would argue with this guy, said the former Marxist. I would explain to him how all of his assumptions were ungrounded. I would point out to him the validity of my political ideology. Every night, we would argue, and every night, I would win the argument. But he would always end our discussion with these same words. Mark, you overpowered me with your arguments once again. But you didn't convince me that you're right. You can't convince me that you're right. You can't because I know that Jesus is real. I feel him in my life. I sense his presence every day. I have a personal relationship with him, and it can't be questioned. In the end, a solid personal relationship with Jesus was the strongest witness we can bear in the kingdom. The kid looks at the most brilliant kid that Tony Campolo has ever worked with, and he says, I don't, I don't know. You win. You win every argument. You're the best arguer that's ever argued. But one thing I do know, and you can't take it from me. You can't take it from me. It's that I know who Jesus is and I know what he's done for me. And I'll talk to young adults all the time and you guys are steeped in conversations, conversations where people are asking you questions, questions about Calvinism versus, you know, free will. People are asking questions, why do bad things happen to good people? People are asking you questions, well, if God's so good, then why do natural disasters happen or children die of starvation? People are asking you questions and you can go to school and you can study, and I encourage you to, and you can learn, and you can grow. But here's the reality for you and for me, is that we are never going to get to a point where we have an answer for everything, not this side of heaven. And that it's okay, and that it's actually wonderful to say, look, like, I submit. You're awesome. 
I don't know everything. But one thing I do know is that Jesus has changed my life. This is what the blind man is saying. He's saying, I, I don't know everything. But I do know that I was blind, like forever. And then I could see. Do you remember where Jesus found you? Because the blind man knows exactly where Jesus found him. Do you remember where you were? Were you alone? Were you hurting? Did you feel forgotten? Did you have anxiety? Did you have worry? Were you steeped in sin? Were you following drugs and men and women? Like, where were you? Were you just trying to measure up but leading a fake life? Where were you? I know where I was. I know exactly where I was when Jesus found me. I was trying so hard to be perfect for everybody in my life, and I knew I was missing the mark. I was hurting, and I was desperate, and he found me. Do you remember where you were? And then do you remember the first time that you saw his face? The first time that he whispered to you, hey, you're not alone. Hey, I'm going to go with you. Hey, I have plans for you. Do you remember the first time you felt his presence in worship? Jesus says, it's okay for you to not know everything. But it's very important that you share with people the one thing that you know. Revelations 12 says this about sharing our words with people. It says, um, then I heard, and this is talking about um, after, after the second coming, then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, and he who is, accuses him before God day and night. And they overcame him, meaning Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. We overcome and we win every argument, not because we're awesome, not because we know everything, but because we have the power of a testimony that legitimately nobody can touch. And the interesting thing about that is that it says by the word of your testimony, meaning that at some point, young adult, you have to use your words. You have to use your words. And I think the last point that we can gain from John 9 is you have a voice. You have a voice. John 9, 27 says this. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? So they're still talking to him and still questioning. It's amazing. Um, how did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already, and you did not listen. Why? Do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? I love it because he's so innocent. He's like, look, I've told you everything I know. I, I, I mean, why are you asking? Like, do you, do you want to follow him too? Is that what you're wanting to do? And we will all get to a point, and I've had many, many, many times in my life, and you will all get to a point in your conversations with people and in your relationships with people where you're due. They've been asking you questions. They've been, you know, kind of asking you your story. You've been telling them your story. You've been, you know, the, the answering as many questions as you possibly can, but you know that you're due to kind of turn it around and ask them a question. It's your turn to ask a question. And at this point, he looks at them and he's like, um, so you've been asking me a lot of questions, but so do you want to know him? Do you, do you want to come to church sometime? Do you want to come to the meetup next week? There's going to be loads of hot women there. <laughs> do you want to come? Dude, whatever it takes. I don't care. Whatever it takes. 
There will be loads of very attractive young men there. Like, I don't know. It's more awkward for, for me to say that. I'll talk about the girls. So, <laughs> hey, do you know him? Do you know him? Band, you guys can come back out. There comes a point in every relationship that we have where they've asked the questions, you've told your story, and then you need to ask a question. Hey, do you, I mean, do you know, do you, who do you think Jesus is? Judah Smith started an entire campaign just by saying Jesus is fill in the blank. And people from all walks of life and all faces of the earth started writing in who they thought he was. And guess what? Nobody thought he was a terrible person. Maybe start there. Who do you think he is? Maybe it's time that we start asking some questions. When I was working at the Chop House, I uh, had a really good friend who was a valet there. His name was Chris. And every day, you know, when I would like leave, we'd like talk for a couple minutes and hang out and kind of talk about our nights. And he was kind of the head over all of the valets. And so he worked there quite a bit and I would see him fairly often. And, and we had built a relationship. He knew I loved Jesus. He knew I went to Red Rocks Church. I kind of had invited everybody at a different point in time. Most people said no, it was cool. Um, but every now and then I'd bring a person and I invited Chris every now and then. But then I also knew that I needed to ask him some more questions. And there was one night where he was out front and he was reading a book. And I was like, oh, what are you reading? And he lifted it up and it was, it was a study of Buddhism. And I was like, oh, sweet. Like, why are you, what's up? Like, what you, are you kind of curious about some stuff? Are you curious about God? I mean, and he was like, yeah, I'm super curious. I'm just reading this because I thought it would be interesting. And I just asked him a question. I said, Chris, have you, have you ever read the Bible? Like, ever? And he said, no. And he wasn't defensive. He said, but I'll think about it. I'll think, that sounds cool. Two years go by and I start working at Red Rocks and one Sunday I'm sitting at the back of church and I see Chris walk up with his wife and his little girl and he's like, oh, this is huge. This is, this is where you work? And I'm like, this is so, yeah, isn't it amazing? Like, God's real, it's really cool. And he's like, that's amazing. And, and he came in and he sat down. And for the next two months, I kind of kept my eye on him. And he came every Sunday with his wife and with his little girl. And then one Sunday, he got saved. And a few Sundays after that, he got baptized. And you will never know, young adult, the power of your words, of you saying, you know what? I don't know everything. Like, you win the arguments. I'm not always the best. It's cool. I don't know all the answers to everything. But one thing I know that nobody can take from me is I know where I was when he found me. And I know where I am now. And it's no place that I would be without him. He's my king. He's my savior. He's the best thing going. He's Jesus. It's his kingdom. It's never going to stop. It's always going to go. And I'm a part of it. Like, this is my story. I don't know everything, but one thing I know. And what if a group of young adults began using the power of their words, not their Facebook post. Don't just tag someone in a meetup Instagram. Get out there and actually use your words. And I promise you, you use your faith muscle once this coming week. You use it once. 
and you will be rewarded with bigger faith and more audacious faith for the next time around. You will see the stories in your life grow. Don't be scared. And here's the deal. We live in a world right now that is just dying to shut Christians up. It can't wait for you to shut up, for you to not use your words, for you to not stand up and say, I don't know, but I know that I know that I know that he saved me and that he's king. Would you guys stand? With every head bowed in here and every eye closed, if you're in here and uh, just as a faith act, just as an act of faith, a simple act of faith, a simple act of obedience. Tonight, I just want you to just sign on the dotted line. And it doesn't even necessarily need to be this next week, but to say, you know what, Jesus? <laughs> I'm coming out of the closet. I'm a Christian. And I'm going to tell some people about it. If you're in here, would you just raise your hand and say, I'm willing to use my words. Maybe for once, would you just raise your hand in here tonight to say, I'm willing. I'm obedient, God. I want to follow you. I want to at least try. Somebody tried so that I could be here tonight. Somebody stepped out in faith so that I'd say yes. Somebody asked me to come to church. And that's why I'm here tonight. And so would you just raise your hand and say, Jesus, I want to try. I just want to try. You can put your hands down. And now if you're in here and you don't know him, you don't know the king who saves, you don't know the king who heals, you don't know the king who takes your insides and completely flips them around and gives you a hope and a future, and you're like, I would love to know this man. If you're in here and you would like to receive Jesus for the very first time, I'd love for you to raise your hand tonight and just go ahead and put it up in the air. Awesome. 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 Let me pray for us. God, I thank you. I thank you that we get a part of growing your kingdom. God, we're humble. We're here for you. Our entire lives are about you. And whether we're nurses or doctors, students, engineers, God, first and foremost, we're here to just tell people that you're good, that you set us free, that you're the good news. And God, I pray tonight that as we worship, that you would even heal hearts in here, that you'd give us courage, that you'd give people visions about um, their lives, about how they're going to spread the kingdom, about how they're going to build the kingdom. God, um, build us up tonight, Jesus. We love you. We're so grateful for you. In Jesus' name, amen.